listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. So, what does God owe me? That's not really a question we're supposed to ask, I know. We all like know the answer deep down, right? It's not a question we're supposed to ask, but don't we all at some points, we all ask that, right? Like We can all kind of share in the guilt of having, having asked that when we're not supposed to. It's really the question that one of the workers asked the master in this parable. You know, and I think if we're honest, we read this parable and we get to the end and he kind of asks God, hey, what's up with this? And y'all, if we're honest, we're like, that's not a bad question. Actually, I'd kind of like you to answer that question for me, please, God. You know, we've studied a lot of parables this fall. We've been through the whole fall studying many of the parables of Jesus, and some of these are the most beloved, feel-good, awesome scriptures that we have. You know, and so we studied the parable of the prodigal son. And man, that that's father, he runs out to meet the youngest son, and he runs out there and he grabs him and he gives him a big hug. And you read that, and don't you just feel like you got hugged by God? It feels so good. Y'all, I'll be honest, I read this parable, I felt like God told me to eat my cauliflower, okay? Like, take your medicine. I mean, you know he's Jesus, so he's right, but it doesn't feel very good. You know, and I think of many of you who've been in this church or other churches, you've been serving and involved in ministry for longer than I've been alive. And you know what? I know the longer we're, we're trying to follow Jesus, the longer we're trying to do the right things, and it's just so easy sometimes to stop and ask, what? What is our service worth to God? What are all these years and effort? What are they worth to God? Shouldn't they be worth something? And if they're not worth anything, then why bother? Why not just be the last that show up, right? Why bear the burden in the heat of the day? Well, you know what? To make matters worse, because I know that's what you want me to do is make matters worse. Uh, You know, a lot of these parables are directed at the bad guys. You know, people like the Pharisees, they're trying to trap Jesus. Jesus tells them some clever parable, boom, got him, roasted. Well, you know what? This parable is a little different. The more you consider yourself a disciple of Jesus, the the longer you've been following him, the more you want to live generously and serve him, then you know what? The more this parable is directed at you. Because this parable is an answer to someone's question. It's an answer to Peter's question. Back in, let's back up a little bit in chapter 19 and get the context a little bit. So Jesus has this interaction that's probably pretty familiar with a lot of you. A rich man walks up to Jesus and says, Jesus, how do I inherit eternal life? Jesus says, actually, no big deal. It's actually very simple. You just sell everything you have and you come follow me. And he goes away sad because he's got a lot of stuff he don't want to get rid of. And then Jesus says these words that are pretty fairly well known. It is easier for a camel to fit through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter my kingdom. And then right after that, in 1927, in this huge, almost comical exercise in missing the point, Peter sees this, he hears Jesus say the weird thing about the camel and now the needle, and he comes up to Jesus and he says, See, look, we've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus, or Peter has this moment of, wait a minute, is this all worth it? Because he is absolutely right. He left everything to follow Jesus and has been doing it for some time now. And Jesus, it kind of sounded like 
You just said there's not going to be any rich people in your kingdom. But here's the deal, Jesus. I thought I was one of the first ones to follow you. I'm kind of acting like your right-hand man here. And I thought when you're the new Caesar, when you're the new emperor, you know, the emperor's right-hand man is not going to be exactly poor. Right? And your little words here kind of making me wonder, has this been worth it? So Jesus answers with a proverb. A short proverb, and it's the last thing he says before he goes into the parable. Well, actually, his immediate answer, he says, hey, don't worry. Anyone who's left anything for me will be returned a hundredfold. Don't worry, it's going to be worth it. But then he says this proverb, and it's the last thing he says before the parable, and he ends the parable with it. And it's this, the last shall be first, and the first shall be last. Now, what does that little proverb mean? It's actually highly debated what that means. Well, it's the point. It's what he's trying to communicate. It's how he's trying to answer Peter. And y'all, the meaning of the proverb is the meaning of the parable. So let's dive into the parable here. Verse 1 and 2 of chapter 20. Picture this owner of this vineyard. He goes out uh, into the marketplace to find some workers. These workers would have been day laborers. They are the bottom of the totem pole. So even below a household slave. So a household slave, a household servant, That's kind of full-time employment. They've got a steady job. They've got a steady uh, source of provision and income. Not these day laborers. These day laborers had to go out into the marketplace and hope and pray that they, and not all the rest of the day laborers looking for work, that they got work that day. And guess what? If they got work, they got to eat that day. If they didn't get work, they didn't get to eat that day. And even if they did get to work and eat that day, that meant nothing about tomorrow. And so they'd show up the next day in the marketplace and do it all over again, hoping they could find some work, hoping that they would get picked so that they could eat that day. This probably would have been harvest time when the marketplace would have been filled with these guys, filled with these day laborers, where some would get work, but many would have been turned away and gone away hungry. And so the master, he agrees with them. He makes a contract with them for a denarius. Now, y'all, a denarius would have been uh, a very respectable day's wage for a full-time employee. So a soldier, again, a household servant, so- someone like that, it was way too much for day laborer. Way too much. It was way above their pay grade. If nothing else, because of the fact that a master could easily go in there and say, hey, will you work for this? No? Okay. Well, I'll turn around to these other 35 guys, and I bet somebody will. And so when this master would have walked up and said, hey, how about this? I'll make a contract with you. And y'all, even though it's spoken and verbal, it would have been a legally binding contract. How about a denarius? Those guys would have been like, yeah, baby. They'd have been, they were probably thinking, this guy, he's getting old. He's getting senile. He's been in the sun too much. We better take this deal before he realizes what he has done. They don't have to think about it. They don't have to pray about it. They take that deal. By the way, denarius... Uh, came from the word that means 10, because when they originally made this coin, it was worth 10 donkeys, which seems like a really odd payment system. Uh, But there you go. That's totally free. That applies nothing to the sermon here. Uh, Verse 3 through 5. So he goes back in the third hour and finds more workers. And, And so if you're these workers, you saw the first crop go, and they got work and you didn't. And so your stomach is starting to growl a little bit. The third hour would have been about 9 o'clock, so they didn't have clocks to set back and forth like we did last night, you know. And so they just roughly broke the day uh, into the 12 hours that the sun was up. And so that 12 hours from sun up to sundown. And so 
Uh, that first hour would have been between 5, 6 o'clock. The third hour would have been about 9 o'clock. He comes back, and for the first time, no contract. They don't agree to anything specifically. He just says, hey, whatever's right, I'll pay you. And again, these guys have no bargaining power. They got no other options. No other masters are coming back in the middle of the day and hiring people. And so they got to take what they can get. And they say, yeah, no problem. And he comes back the sixth, the ninth hour, that would have been noon, three o'clock. So if it's three o'clock, these men have since 6 a.m. sat in that market hoping and praying for work, for provision, and their desperation grows by every hour. And then lo and behold, this guy shows up at three o'clock still willing to hire them. So let's go to verse 6 and 7. He comes back at the 11th hour. Y'all, this is about 5 o'clock. The sun is already going down. And to these workers' astonishment, some guy shows up still looking for work. And so they eagerly accept, again, without a contract. But this time the master, master asked them a question. He says, why have you been here idle in the marketplace all day? Why haven't you been working? Are you unwilling? Are you unable? Are you lazy? You've been sleep, you sleep too late to begin with and just now show up? What's the deal? And their answer is very telling. They say, it's real easy, real simple, while we've been sitting here in the marketplace idle. No one's hired us. No one's hired us. Their answer is meant to show that there is absolutely no difference between the 11th hour workers and the first hour workers except one. The master hired them. That's it. They are willing. They are able. In fact, they are eager to work. They're just waiting for the master to hire them. And so again, no contracts needed. They, he says, hey, whatever's fair, I'll come do it. And y'all, I think at this point, we are starting to maybe get the first signs that God may not know what he's doing. That God may be a little bit off his rocker. Because that's who the master is in this story. It's supposed to be God. But it, this guy's like the worst mis- businessman ever. He seems to have no idea how many workers he needs. He seems to be terrible at looking at his crops and saying, hey, it's going to take about this many guys. Because he just keeps coming on back and needing more. And we're going to go on to find out. You read ahead. His payment system is absolutely and totally wackadoo. You can't have this kind of payment system, right? Many of you work in businesses or run businesses or own businesses. You know what would happen if this was your payment system, right? Everybody be lazy. They just come in about 4 o'clock, check out at 5 o'clock. Hey, they're getting paid the same no matter what. No big deal. You have to incentivize people to, to, to pay the more, to do the most. And you know what? You can't even run a church this way. If we try to run our church this way or other ministries this way, they get run into the ground. So maybe, hey, maybe this is a cute little story, but we live in the real world, okay? This is completely crazy and impractical, which leaves us with two options. Either God is terrible at business, or he's not talking about business. Let's keep reading. Verse 8 and 10, ironically enough, the last workers get to quit first. And they get to go and they receive their wage and to their shock and awe and astonishment, they get paid a denarius. A full day's wage for a full-time employee. And they're thinking one thing, cha-ching, I can't believe this. We showed up at five o'clock when the sun was going down. What a generous master. Well, the first hour workers are watching this too, aren't they? They're watching this. And they see these 11th hour workers get the full denarius. And you know what they're thinking? Cha-ching! 
man, they got a full denarius. There's no telling what we can, we're going to get. We're going to be able to retire after this, guys. I mean, you do the math. We worked 12 times longer. We should get paid 12 times more, right? This is what they're expecting. So then they walk up and they approach with all this excitement. They're already counting how they're going to spend their money, but instead they only receive disappointment. In verse 11 through 12, one of them comes to the master and he complains. And listen to his complaint. He says, we bore the burden of the day in the scorching heat. And he's absolutely right. They would have worked the longest and the hottest part of the day. These Johnny come lately showed up in the 11th hour. The sun's already going down. It is nice and cool and feels great outside. These guys were working at high noon while the sun was beating down on them. This is the same thing Peter was thinking. Y'all, Peter's not a freeloader. He's in. He's all in. He's committed. He's absolutely right that he's left everything he has. And you know what? Maybe he just wants to know that this all matters that it's been worth something to the master. Or maybe that he won't be just easily discarded when the next guy comes along. You've been there, haven't you? You don't get the job, you don't get the easy marriage, the healthy kids, the financial security, the good life. And you have struggled bearing the burden in the heat of the day. And then you look over or you pull up Facebook and you see some others who seem to have it so easy. Listen, if you're like me in that moment, you kind of ask, what does God owe me? And the answer so often is, I don't really know what God owes me, but it feels like it should be more than this. Been there. Listen, in that moment, in that exact moment amidst those questions, the master speaks. Verse 13 through 15, he answers them. And we learn three things. Three things about God, and this is why Jesus is telling the parable. The first thing we learn is that God is just. He is just in verse 13. So their attack, their question is one of justice and of fairness, and you're not treating us right according to how we deserve. And the first thing he tells them is, listen, guys, I've done you no wrong. I'm completely innocent here. I've done nothing wrong to you. In fact, I fulfilled everything I promised you. And didn't he? He gave them everything he said he would give them. God is completely just. He will keep every single one of his promises. The problem is often we think he has promised us something he hasn't. So my best advice is use to, to pick up your Bible and read it and explore it and find out exactly what it was God has promised you and build your life on that because he is just and he will always do what is right and he will fulfill every one of his promises. Next, we find out God is free. You know, and this is the kind of take your medicine question. He asks it, you know he's right, but it doesn't feel good. He says, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Hey, this is my vineyard. I had people plant them. This is my money that I'm paying you. In fact, if it weren't for me, there would be no vineyard. You would not be hired. You would still be hopeless and desperate and hungry in the market. This is all mine. Am I not free to do what I want to with what's mine? And of course, we know this about God. He created everything. It is all His. He acts freely. He acts of His own sovereignty. He is not indebted to you or to me. So when He does act, it is freely. It is not out of obligation. In fact, the only obligation He has is that of His own promise that He freely made. Out of no obligation. He is free 
He is sovereign. He is in debt to none of us. Last thing we learn. God is generous. He's generous. You know, those last workers know very, very well something that the first workers seem to have forgotten, that if not for this master stepping in, they would still be hungry and hopeless in the market. And y'all, every detail, every part of this parable is meant to exaggerate the master's generosity. Didn't they all make way more than they earned? Yes. He generously paid all of them. He was indiscriminately generous. Any, everyone he interacted with, he was generous with. You know what? This kind of this him going back over and over and over again to the market in a way that kind of seems ridiculous to us, that's because it should seem ridiculous. No master operated this way. No owner of a vineyard would be so clueless on how many workers he needed and be so surprised. Those grapes didn't like pop up afternoon out of the ground and him say, oh, wait, we got more than I thought. We got better go get some more workers. So why is he going back over and over and over again? Well, he's coming back, not because of his need, but because of their need. That's the whole picture. The master doesn't need them, and yet he's continually returning, continually, indiscriminately being generous to the people in need. So our God is just, he is free, and he is generous. He always fulfills his promises. He is not bound or indebted to us. And he is indiscriminately generous. And I think this master's response, this is God speaking in to those questions we all have. The owner's response is an invitation to you and I to rethink our situation. to Put on fresh eyes and rethink about what God owes us. Stop thinking in terms of what we deserve, but start thinking in terms of what is freely given to remember his generosity and where we would be without it. And then Jesus closes with that proverb, so the last will be first and the first last. And y'all, I think this is where God is addressing not the question we express, but the question we really have in our hearts. Let me explain what I mean. So this proverb, in context of what the parable is, is not this reversal, you know, where someone's the head honcho on top, Jesus slips out the rug from underneath them, now they're on bottom, you know, bottom of the totem pole gets to go on the top. That's not what he's talking about. There's a sameness. They all got paid the same. They all received the same wage. And so what's in view here is a great leveling. Speaks about this in Isaiah 40, 40, that when God acts, he, every valley is lifted and every mountain is brought low. And so what's in view here is a great plane of God's generosity where all are the same and all is leveled. Well, that statement sounds great if you consider yourself the last. But if you consider yourself the first in the inner circle, and the circle of trust is the one who's paid your dues and born in the heat of the day, the one who's proven yourself, then this statement kind of stinks. The statement is something that we don't like. Sometimes we get frustrated at God's complete void of comparison. And that's the part that we can't stand. Think of how the workers worded their complaint. They didn't come and say, Master, you haven't paid us enough. What did they say? They said, you have made them equal to us. 
So their issue isn't so much, God, here's what you did with me. Their issue is with what the master did with them, right? And so there's a question hiding beneath our question. The one we express is, God, what do you owe me? The question we're really thinking is, God, what do you owe them? Right? Parents in here, if you've been a parent for more than five seconds, you've been accused of not being fair. Right? Sometimes in the womb, they're like, you're not fair. Right? If you're like me, nine times out of ten, that has something to do with how I've treated someone else, namely their sibling, right? And so everyone's happy. Everyone's having a great time. Everyone's perfectly happy and content. And then one sibling does something they're not supposed to, tell them not to. And then the other sibling comes up and says, no, 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 that's not fair because 1.7 years ago, I said the same thing and you sent me to my room and you're not sending them to their room, right? It's always in comparison. Their issue isn't so much what I'm doing with, with them. The issue is what I'm doing with their sibling. And in a moment, it starts off that directed towards them, and then they direct it at me. Which means, y'all, our real issue, our real issue is not justice. Our real issue is envy. It's envy. And here's how envy works. It puts on a costume. It expresses itself as, as a, a question of justice. We all just did Halloween, right? Many of us did. And so either you went trick-or-treating with a kid, or maybe you had some kids come to your door. What happens when a kid comes and he rings the doorbell at your door, you open the door, and you say, what are you? Well, he doesn't say, I'm Johnny dressed as Batman. What does he say? I'm Batman. That's what I am. Is that what he is? No. That's what our cries for justice are sometimes. They come to your door, not saying, hey, I'm envy dressed as justice. No, no, no. They come saying, I'm justice. But so many times, y'all, so many times, our cry for justice is just a disguise. It's a costume for our own comparison and scorekeeping. God, you're not keeping score right because you got us on a level playing field, and we know that. We know that's clearly a mistake. So it starts with envy. It starts with how God starts treating someone other person, and then in a nanosecond, just like that, turns to a cry for justice. And when we ask questions like this, which y'all, we all do, we all ask questions like this, there's something that we miss. And this is why Jesus is speaking into, into this situation with this proverb. See, we can only ask those questions when alongside them there exists a huge blind spot in our heart. And our blind spot is this. Here it is. We don't want God to be consistent. Remember, God is all three things. He is just he is free, and he is generous, and we don't really want him to be all three of those things all the time. What we want is him to be one of those things sometimes, or maybe two of those things sometimes, two different things other times. Sometimes we want him to be one thing to us and something else to someone else. There's a couple major ways I think we want God to be inconsistent. One of those is we want God to be generous but not free. Not free because he owes us. He owes us. I have something I want to show you all in this bowl here. Now, if I were to ask you, what are these? And you said, those are neon-collared cotton balls. You would be exactly wrong. These are fuzzies. Now, I don't know about the school your kids go to. At Stan Smith in kindergarten, these are the currency of kindergarten. Fuzzies. Ain't that right, Caleb? So, 
Do your homework, bam, get a fuzzy. Obey the teacher, bam, get a fuzzy. Do your assignment, get a fuzzy. I'm losing fuzzies here. Do right, perform, boom, fuzzy, reward. And then on Friday, you get to go exchange all your fuzzies for all kind of neat and wonderful prizes. This is how we start off in school. This is how we start off in kindergarten. Perform, get a fuzzy, then get a reward, right? Y'all, we never really graduate from the fuzzies, do we? We never do. Go through that, like, all through school. Study hard, get the grade, you get the scholarship. Score the touchdown, make the goal, you get the letter jacket, you get the accolades, you get the reputation. We do this with friends. Hey, you want to be loved? Be lovable. Learn how to have the good personality, have the sense of humor, go to the thing, be likable. Perform, reward, perform, reward. We do this in our marriage. 50-50 marriage. Hey, you want something from me? You got to do something for me. Perform, reward, perform, reward. Then we do it with our jobs. Hey, you want the power? You want the promotion? You want the influence? Perform, you'll get the reward. Yo, we even do this in church. You want the good reputation? You want to be well thought of? Hey, come to church. Serve. Don't show any keeks in your armor. Perform, reward, perform, reward. And y'all, this is not all bad. This is the way the world works. It is okay to incentivize good behavior, but here's where we go wrong. This may be the way the world works, y'all. This is not the way God works. God does not shout fuzzies for our good behavior. That is the point of this story. In fact, if I had to say a big idea of this whole parable, it's this. Here's the big idea. It's all grace. It's all grace grace. The workers showed up thinking they were earning a wage. And the whole point of the parable is the master isn't in the business of wages. I like the way N.T. Wright said it. No relation. The point of the story is that what people get from having served God in his kingdom, excuse me, is not actually a wage at all. It's not strictly a reward for work done. God doesn't make contracts with us as if we could bargain or negotiate for a better deal. He makes covenants in which he promises us everything and asks of us everything in return. Listen, men and women, God loves your obedience. He really does. He loves it when you trust him. He loves it when you do what what he asks you to do, but it doesn't move you up the food chain even a little bit. It does not earn anything for you in his eyes. And when you take away God's freedom, where he is indebted to you. All you're left with is Christian entitlement. That's all you're left with. That's all you have left. And your relationship with God becomes merely a series of transactions where I'm not serving, I'm not giving, I am buying. And maybe with a little bit of my bad behavior, yeah, I buy God's punishment, but then hopefully with enough of my good behavior, I buy his favor. You know, other times we want God to be free and generous with us, but just with others, don't we? You know, we forget, though, when we say that God is God. His character is consistent. He has to be consistent. And so if we're going to say that God is just, he has to be just all the time and with everyone, including us. See, it's not entirely true to say that God owes us nothing. He does owe us something. We have earned a wage from him. We have earned something. We find it in Romans 6.23. It says, for the wages of sin is death. That's what we have earned. That's our due wage. 
with God. And so the, the real conundrum here is to say, okay, how can God be freely just and freely generous at the same time? And if he is that way, how can we experience both? Because what we have earned is the justice side. You know what the next verses after this parable are? Get your Bible open still. Look down. The very next verses. Jesus is telling about his death and resurrection. He says, you know what? We're headed to Jerusalem. I'm going to be mocked, flogged, and crucified. You know what Jesus is saying? He's saying, look, I know. I know you're so concerned about getting what you earned. I know you want to make sure you're in the right spot in the pecking order. Your blind spot is, I'm about to get your wage. I'm receiving what you earned, and you'll get the master's generosity. That's the piece you're missing. So you know why God doesn't treat us differently? You know why everything is level with God? Because he isn't responding to us at all. He is responding to Jesus. He is responding to the cross. See, without the cross, we get all of God's justice and none of his generosity. But because of the cross, we get all of his generosity because Jesus received all of it. How do we live in light of a God who is generous, free, and just? Just two things very quickly. Number one, contracts contaminate relationships. Contracts contaminate relationships. This is true of our earthly relationships. It is especially true of our relationship with God. And there's a test. There's a test you can use to see if you've taken up this contractual view of God. And it's in this parable. Here's the test. Does God's generosity, especially at others, make you joyful or jealous? Does God's generosity make you joyful or jealous? And which one it will be largely depends on how you entered the relationship. This is why only one set of workers had a contract. Who was it? It was the first set of workers, right? They came in with a contract, and they left jealous. All the other workers came in simply trusting the generosity of the master. And then they went away filled with joy at his generosity. So if your relationship with God is all contract, guess what? You will always, always, at some point, you will end up jealous. Like he says in verse 15, you will begrudge God his generosity. Why? Because they aren't performing like you are. They aren't holding up the contract like you are. Your contract will contaminate your relationship with God. Second, Jesus is everything. Jesus is everything. What do I mean by that? Jesus is the fullness of God's generosity. See, sometimes when we have these questions about, okay, what does God owe me? What does God owe them? It's kind of like this sense that God is holding back on us. He's holding something out that I really would be happier that I, if I had that I really need. Y'all, Paul addresses just this situation in Romans 8, 31 through 39. He's writing to believers, much like the persecuted church we prayed for this morning, who are facing all kinds of challenges. He says, you're going to face tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. He says, how do we know God will remain faithful in all of these things? How do we know none of these things will be able able to separate us from God's love? Here's how we know, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? 
How do we know nothing can separate us from God's love? Answer, because he gave us his son. That's the principle here. He's saying God gave us his son. When he gave us his son, he was giving us everything. There is nothing held back that we need. It's like if I came up to you and I just gave you a million dollars. And then you came back to me later and said, hey, can I borrow a dollar? And I said, no, I'm not holding out on you. I gave you everything already. I'm not going to give you a million dollars and then withhold one dollar from you. That's the principle here. And that's one of the reasons the first shall be as the last. That's one of the reasons we're on this great plane. It's because God has held nothing back. There's nothing in reserve that some get and others don't get. Here's what God is saying. He's saying, look, you want the fuzzies? You already have all of the fuzzies. I've given them all to you. Here, here, have some fuzzies. There's nothing left. You have them all. There's nothing left you could earn, even if you could. But doesn't it still feel like sometimes what God has given me isn't quite enough? I get there sometimes. Why is that? Why do we experience If God has given us everything in his son, why does it still feel like that sometimes? Well, any hint that we need something more from God than his son is a temporary distortion. In eternity, we will see that God has given us every spiritual blessing in Christ, every, each and every one, everything we needed through Christ. And here's what I think we're going to find out. I think we're going to find out many of the things that he thought he owed us were actually an enemy to our spiritual life, not a blessing. They were things that would keep us from Christ, not give us more of Christ. And in fact, y'all, when we accuse God of holding out on us, here's what essentially we're saying. Hey, God, thanks for your son, but it's not enough. I want something different. I want something more. Like this, I'd be willing to bet each and every person here that has lived any length of time You've had something in your life, some moment that made you question God's goodness or justice. But then some time went by. And then in retrospect, you look back, you have a new perspective, and you could see, you know what? I thought that's what I needed. It wasn't what I needed. In fact, God had had it under control the whole time. And in those situations, you can look back and say with Joseph, hey, the enemy may have intended that for evil, but all along, God was working it for good. You know, that perspective, I think, is going to be amplified exponentially in eternity. And we will see, man, all along we had every spiritual blessing in Christ. So stop trying to earn something when everything has been freely given and that everything has a name, that everything is Jesus. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.